And today we're going to be thinking about the question of why he must die, why Jesus must die. So this is, in fact, uh, the third time that we have seen him predict his death in a paragraph, a substantial amount of information. And um, this is going to be something that's very interesting for us to, to consider. But I want to put to you that really there are two reasons why Jesus had to die. Um, first of all, this is why Jesus came. Okay, answering the question why he must die. Well, this is why he came. And secondly, we see very clearly that Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, which is verse 45, and perhaps the verse we may uh, focus in upon the most. We shall see it's the very last. Hopefully we'll get there and be able to consider it carefully. But first things first, <clears throat> this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to die. It's a really helpful thing for us to be clear about. His death was not a setback. It wasn't a failure. It wasn't a cause for his victory, sorry, his enemies to um, gloat over or to be victorious over him. Because he was going to die, it wasn't an indication that he had failed. His death is predicted by himself three times in Mark's Gospel. And here we see the third major prediction and we also see it in greater detail in terms of what is mentioned. Let's have a look at verses 32 to 34. And I'll just point out a few things that may be helpful for you to understand more clearly. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Now it's interesting, we'll pause there. The disciples were astonished. They were astonished that Jesus was headed towards Jerusalem. He'd already said that he was going to die and it was fairly clear to them that Jerusalem was the place where that was going to take place. So they were astonished that he would actually go forward with confidence, with a friendly step, so to speak. While those who followed were afraid. So that is the crowd that was actually following him. Going on. Again, he took the 12 aside and told, uh, sorry, and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. We'll pause there. Handing over to the Gentiles, that of course was referring to the Roman authorities. But in the Old Testament, when you see God's people being handed over to the Gentiles, that was effectively them being handed over to the wrath of God. It was a really terrible thing. And this is what Jesus is saying is actually going to happen to him, who in verse 34 will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So quite a detailed account of what is to come upon Jesus. Now, Jesus' death sets him apart from any of the other founders of world religions, major world religions, that is. The founders of major world religions 
They had as their objective as being to live and to give an example of what they thought should be an example. But Jesus' purpose was different. It was to die and to be a sacrifice. Can you see how Jesus is unique compared with other religious figures? They were focusing upon life and an example, which in some way have been recorded. But Jesus is in fact with the purpose of dying and being a sacrifice. It's incredible. And furthermore, Jesus is amazing because God has sent his son to be this sacrifice. In the ancient world, there were ideas of other gods and often there was a sacrifice component in it involved in terms of atonement or making oneself right with the God so the God would not be angry with you or upset. But the sacrifice was never related to the God himself, not related to the God's son. It was something that required an effort or an initiative by the person who was seeking the actual atonement. But what we see with Jesus going to the cross was that he was someone who was God's son. God was actually sending his own son to die and to be sacrificed. And of course, this is a great illustration or great, great evidence for us of God's amazing love for us so that our relationship with God is right. So this is why Jesus has come. He is very plain about it. It's the third major time in Mark's gospel where he has predicted his death. So why must he die? Well, it's because he has come to do this. But the second one is, the second reason I'll give you, um, is more precise in terms of what it is that he would actually go on and perform and why that was actually necessary to be, be performed. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this is an incredible approach to life. He came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom, which will unfold in a moment. But it was a very great contrast to the disciples, James and John. It seems that they had not learned the lesson that had been taught in chapter 9, verse 35. If we were to go back there, I can just read it for you. Um, we read this, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And we looked at the idea of true greatness involving service or servanthood. And yet we see here that Jesus is such a contrast to James and John in chapter 10, verse 35. It says this, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they asked, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. So James and John, well, they, the penny hadn't dropped for them. They were still seeking greatness. Uh, they were still wanting to be served. They wanted to be seated at the right hand of Jesus in his glory. They were vying for the top positions, I think, uh, trying to get ahead of the other 10 disciples. And that, of course, incensed the other disciples. What's very interesting, though, is then how Jesus responds. Verse 38, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. 
Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now, there's some interesting language there. There's the idea of a cup. There's the idea of a baptism. Collectively, these two images are referring to God's wrath and death and suffering. We can go into all sorts of detail and unpack that and look at all of the the differences. But really, the gist of verse 38 is that Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Can you experience the suffering that I'm going to experience? Can you experience the death I'm going to experience? Can you experience the wrath of God that I am going to experience? Verse 39, it's almost hilarious. We can, (laughs) they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Well, there is a curiosity. Why does Jesus actually assent or affirm what they've actually said that they can do? What Jesus says in verse 38 is unique to him. He was the one who was going to redeem the world. His death would be unique. It was incredibly special and specific to him. They think that they can do that. They're quite foolhardy in verse 39. And Jesus in verse 39 is saying, well, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Now, there are a couple of different views that uh, of how you actually read that particular verse. Was Jesus saying that he was going to vicariously um, die and experience this suffering and we would be identifying with Jesus? I don't think it's that. I think what Jesus is saying is that you're not going to experience the same sort of suffering and death that I'm going to experience. You're not going to take upon yourself the sins of the whole world and be cut off from God as a punishment or a penalty. But you are going to experience suffering and you may very well experience death because the life of a disciple is in fact something that is quite an ordeal. It is quite challenging. It's not all peaches and cream, not all beer and skittles, all those sort of things. It's, it's actually something that is very challenging, which we have seen time and time again through Mark's gospel. Jesus is saying that we would be people who would experience suffering and pain The places that they are aspiring to, well, Jesus says, these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared, which is probably an indication that it's being prepared. These places are being prepared for the little ones. Uh, It's being prepared for the people who are the humble people because the kingdom reverses the values of the world. It turns things upside down. And so he, of course, also says, He doesn't effectively know these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And of course, the inference there is that they are prepared by God the Father. In verse 41, it goes on and says, well, the 10 heard about this. They became indignant with James and John. Could you blame them? It was as though these two had really tried to get ahead and to get the the best reservation for heaven. And of course, there was some uh, internal discipline that takes place. But then there's a private encounter that the disciples have with Jesus in verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. So there you have it. Jesus is actually there saying that 
It's not to be your aspiration to be like the rulers of the Gentiles who lord authority over people. It's not to be the case with you. Now that is rather wonderful because he then goes on and says, instead in verse 43, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. So that is what is needed, servanthood. And for the first time, I think we see the mention of being a slave, which is different in, in terms of the original word to the word servant. It's something that is very serious in terms of the commitment that is required and the action that is required. But then what we do see here is that Jesus uh, is then modelled in terms of being this ultimate sl slave or the ultimate servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So answering this question, why must he die? Well, this is what he has come to do. This is why Jesus came. That's the first point, to die. But secondly, what we see here is that Jesus came to serve. And the particular way that he has come to serve is actually by being a ransom. He has come to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what does the word ransom mean? Well, one particular definition I've come across is this, deliverance by the payment of an equivalent. It seems to me like we're in a lecture room. That's uh, quite, quite complicated stuff. I think it could perhaps be more clearly put this way. The price paid for the release of someone from bondage or some form of imprisonment or um, yeah that, that's probably as far as I can go the price paid for the release of someone from bondage or imprisonment now that's what Jesus has come to do for us he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many he has come as the ransomer to ransom us but you've got to ask yourself, we've got to ask ourselves, what has he come to ransom us from? And what he has come to ransom us from is God's wrath that is upon all people who do not trust in Jesus. What that wrath eventuates in is condemnation ultimately and death, spiritual death for eternity. So Jesus has come to ransom us from these consequences. He's come to release us from this particular bondage. And what he's done is he's acted as a substitute for us. So the price paid for the release of someone from bondage is what a ransom is. The price that has been paid was his death upon the cross, which he is speaking about and telling us about. For our release from bondage, which is what we rightfully deserve, God's wrath, which is expressed in condemnation and death. Now, this language of ransom is associated with the language of redemption, which I mentioned before. The word ransom does go with the Exodus account. Well, what we saw there of how the Israelites were in prison, like if they were slaves, they were experiencing oppression, and then they were led out, they were redeemed out of Egypt, 
And then, of course, after a period of time, they made their way to the promised land and they had freedom and a beautiful freedom at that. So what we see back in Exodus was effectively a ransom. We perhaps use the expression the redemption more, more regularly in terms of what, what, what actually happened there or the language of deliverance. It's a rather interesting uh, thing in terms of redemption. Um, we don't really think about redemption very greatly, but I do remember a really interesting example of Tim Keller's when he was in New York. And he one day was um, in Manhattan, which is where he spent a lot of time, in fact. But he must have parked his car in the wrong place or exceeded the time limit in Manhattan, busy New York. And um, his car was towed away. And it ended up going to, let's say, I can't remember the exact expression, but it was this, something like this, the Manhattan Redemption Center. His car had gone to the Manhattan Redemption Center. And of course, he must have found out where it went and he had to go along. And of course, what did he have to do? He had to pay a price in order to have his vehicle released. He was the ransomer and he was paying a price for the ransomed, which was his vehicle. And of course, we are like that vehicle that is purchased by Christ in terms of what he has actually done for us so that we can be set free so that we no longer are guilty before God, so that we are no longer condemned, so that we no longer face death ultimately. And Jesus has performed this ransom for us, this release for us from the consequences of our sin. For all of us, as a ransom for many, as a ransom for many. Now that is an interesting thing. Because that little word for is the little word anti in the Greek, which means in the place of. So he has given his life as a ransom in the place of many. Jesus took our place. We rightfully deserve the punishment that came upon Jesus. But he took that punishment upon himself so that we here could be ransomed and so that all people who repent and believe in Jesus can be ransomed. We see this word in one other place, or many places in scripture I should think, but one other place I'm going to refer us to, and that is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So Jesus Christ has ransomed us. It's a wonderful truth. That's why he came. He came to die. He came to serve and to be a ransom for many. I hope that helps you in understanding Christ more clearly and leads you to want to follow him in an even greater degree. And of course, to praise and thank him as well. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for Jesus Christ just being so clear about his mission. What a contrast with these disciples who are very, very deceived in their thinking. But Father, we do thank you that Jesus Christ carried through and did go to the actual cross. 
We thank you for his service, which is true greatness. We thank you that he gave his life as a ransom to release us from the consequences of our sin. And we thank you, Father, that this promise is held out to many other people. And we long, Father, for many others to realize this ransom and to come to believe in Jesus Christ and to join with us and in other churches in fellowship. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.